today I have Dandan Zhu with me uh, on this episode with Grow With The Flow. Dandan is pretty prolific on LinkedIn and uh, her LinkedIn profile is one of uh, uh, one of the very few that uh, you know I eagerly look at in terms of you know new content um, and just just understanding what uh, what she's thinking about the market. Dandan is based in New York City. Uh, she is a headhunter that specializes in recruiting recruiters for recruiting agencies. That's a bit of a tongue twister. Uh, but uh, uh, and apart from that, she is also a prolific real estate investor, uh, and uh, now dabbling into NFTs. And I'm going to talk more about that, uh, apart from recruiting on this episode. Nandan, welcome, and uh, uh, thank you so much uh, for uh, joining me on this call. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Manan. Well, um, diving right in, Nandan, I would love to understand your journey and how, how you, know, uh, you got started with uh, DG Recruit. Sure thing. So DG Recruit was a combination of just my background being a recruiter for so many years since I graduated from college pretty much. So it was my one and only profession as like a real adult. And so after five years of working at a recruitment agency and being a global top biller, you know, I really excelled and loved this business and really understood the unique things that are facing headhunters today. And it's such a niche field that has a high turnover rate that the people who really understand it are very few and far between. And many of them don't have recruitment businesses that only cater to this very specific demographic, right? This very specific profession. So at the time I was running my real estate, I had multiple properties that were actually pretty, pretty problematic because so many tenants, you know, do not pay rent, unfortunately, in the locations that I picked. Um, and I was a young investor, still a very young professional. So by the time when I started DG Recruit in 2018, it really came out of a point of necessity. I needed income again, like active income, because obviously all of my assets were tied up in a highly illiquid asset. At that point, 95% of my net worth was in real estate. And the cash flow every month was just like a few thousand to cover multiple homes. So I was really running tight on active free cash, like active cash. So what's the best way is to go back to my roots as a recruiter and service specifically this niche that actually a friend was like, you should think about it because this is a space that nobody can do because they don't understand what's going on. So only you can really talk to people and educate them and help them because you've been in their shoes before. So it was a very unique market opportunity. So we very quickly became very successful. Um, and now we've had the business for four years. This is our sort of anniversary, I guess, of the fourth year. Um, and it's just been a really cool journey learning this new market and becoming a leader for top billers to turn to. Well, no, that's fantastic. Congratulations on finishing four years. Now, it's, uh, you know, the last, if, if you look at last couple of years, right, like 2020, and uh, we are nearing the end of 21, these two have been, you know, very, very uh, tumultuous uh, years. Uh, uh, and what are you currently seeing in the market in terms of, uh, uh, you know, demand for recruiters, um, and uh, the whole dynamic of uh, you know scaling uh, a recruiting firm right now. Well, that's a really great question because the last two years, I think the biggest issue with 2020 was that it really limited the amount of incoming recruiters because typically every single year there are new waves 
of talent because this is a high turnover industry. So every single year, there's a certain amount of people that come through the big companies that hire a bunch of people and then only one or two survive and the rest get laid off or quit, right? So we missed out in 2020 on that new incoming pool. So in 2021, things got really, really tight because there's just less population. There's just less people who had now gotten one year of experience. Well, because the whole year of 2020, there was no hiring, there was firing. You know, we missed out on a whole group of like new income, um, incoming, you know, talent. So 2021, there was a definite talent squeeze. And because so many people were so scared during 2020, um, and unfortunately, it was just a very un inhospitable, you know, commercial environment. So yeah. then what happened was so few people were tenacious and perseverant enough to survive 2020, that the ones who did survive, they're in a very good position in 2021. And that's what happened. The people who actually were lucky enough to join the business in 2020, late 2020, right? That's when companies kind of started in like hiring again. A lot of those recruiters actually are phenomenal because they went through some really dry times building and learning how to do all of this in a very negative commercial environment. And by the time 2021 hit, these people were very, very successful. We saw that same thing happen in 2009, 2010, 2011, right? I started my career in 2011, kind of an upswing. Right. And because it was still kind of slow, it, it was like a good time to get familiar because at that point, a lot of the population had left the industry. So I came into a very friendly environment because so many people had just quit and just got thrown out, just got fired, just gave up. Right. Whatever have you. So internally, that happened to us, too. A lot of our staff gave up. They just were like, this is too hard. It's just not a lot of talent. It's really hard to get good talent. I'm going to do something that's, quote unquote, safer or I'm just gonna do something else, right? They didn't find that recruiting recruiters was really essential to their life. They did not really care at the end of the day. They were just like, screw this, I'm gonna go do something else. So that's what happened to a lot of people. The people that survived, obviously when the majority share of the market became a dominant player, that's what happened to us. Grace and I stayed and it's just the two of us now. We went from a team of 10 at our heights to now just two. Right. So now we have the majority of the market fully for us to cover and we can just focus on our own delivery. So I think it's a very positive thing that we went through this violent shakeup. And now it's a great opportunity for anyone who's really serious. Sure. And so since we, we are uh, at the verge of the end of 21 and uh, getting into the new year, I, I know that a lot of people are planning, um, you know, uh, their their years. And what, what do you see? Uh, coming up in uh, 2022? Well, everyone's hiring. So everyone from mom and pops to midsize to large, right? And this is this is nothing new though. See, this is where I'm confused. There is nothing new about this. Yeah. Everybody who runs a recruitment agency wants to hire somebody who can bill a lot of money, whether yeah. it was 2009, 2010, you know, 2020, every single year, recruiting firms want to hire people who know how to sell and bill a lot of money because yeah. we're in a revenue generating seat. So I don't think there's anything new at all about any of this. There's always a high demand for top billers, always. There's just always a demand for people who know how to sell in this unique niche of selling people and selling jobs. It's a very unique sales skill that is not like selling a product, like a SaaS product or a widget or a service. This is selling somebody a nebulous, intangible thing, like a job and a career and a future. This is not like any other sales. So it's a very niche sales market and it's an incredible career opportunity that again, because what hasn't changed 
as well, is the lack of public knowledge about this industry and this career. Still in business school, I went to a business school, no one teaches anybody that there is this career, right? Everybody knows you can make a lot of money as a doctor, as a lawyer, as a, you know, high-end technologist, now tech, right? Everyone knows, oh, developers make a lot of money. Nobody knows that headhunters make a lot of money. They don't even know about this career. So there's still the same fact remains. Nobody knows about this career. So because we have such a lack of knowledge about this business, we will continue to suffer a talent squeeze because a lot of people will go internal. Even successful recruiters will go internal. Yeah. And a lot of people, also some very few people retire like I did. I left the workforce because I retired, right? So some people do leave and set up their own agencies. So then you lose that worker because they don't have to work for someone else. So this is a high loss, high turnover industry. And we do not have enough incoming talent to replace the talent that's leaving to to serve the commercial demand for this particular skill set. Sure. Hey, so you you made made a made a great point about you know um, recruiting not being recognized as as a proper career, right? And um, so let's 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 try and dispel uh, uh, some myths and uh, put some numbers over here, right? So let's say you are a top 20% billing recruiter in, um, in let's just in New York City, right? So that's probably the market that you are most familiar with. Um, and uh, you are a mid-level, uh, let's, let's just say five, seven years uh, out of university uh, recruiter. Uh, how much do you need to build to get into top 20% uh, of uh, your peer group? Well, I think, it's hard to say because I've talked to one-year recruiters that have billed over 500,000. I've talked to 30-year recruiters who bail 300,000. So it's not really age dependent. It's mm-hmm. more about talent mm-hmm. because some people just come into this business and they just know how to do it. They just have an advantage. So, um, you know, at my agency, I can only go by what I saw at my, my past agency and also what I see with my candidates. So I'd say the benchmark is like the top five to 10% of the market probably bills above 500,000, right? Like that's considered good. That's like sort of like the baseline kind of like, that's when you start becoming a serious contender for like a legitimately amazing headhunter. Cause 300,000 today with wage inflation isn't very impressive. That's just like 10 deals, right? 10 deals at 30 K a pop yeah. is 300,000. And again, yeah. And again, what, what, also is not being calculated. So it's very complicated is sometimes people are just billing off of existing house accounts versus someone who can totally build a completely new client base and fulfill those racks. And I'm just talking about perm recruitment. I'm not even talking about 10, right? So perm recruiters, I think the minimum standard, whether it's a hot or cold desk, today is really 300,000. Like if you do really anything less than that, it just means you're still learning. I I talked to a lot of billers in the first year. They're like, I did 150K. That to me is just not very good, right? But in their industry, in their job, it's considered decent because some companies will pay you 50% for that. So they're taking home 75K for billing, you know, 150, which again, I think is very low. It's extremely low, um, but they think it's good, right? So everybody just depending on your commission bracket, like if someone gets only 30% of their total billings, 
you have to bill a lot more money to make any decent money. If you get 50% of your billings, you can bill half as much and make almost the same amount as money. So I think it really does depend on what situation you're in. So I was in a bracket where I earned about net 30% of my billings. And that was off of my own clients and off of my own candidates. I had to double end each deal. So I think what I did was, was the hardest because you have to bill a lot. You have to do all the parts of the job and you only get 30% at the end of the day, like inclusive of your base. It's only because I didn't know anything. When you're a college grad and you go into your first recruitment agency, you don't know anything about this industry. So if you're in a situation, it's smart. And that's why recruiting recruiters, it's something, it's a very necessity kind of industry because these people don't know any better, right? So when I was billing over 700,000 for my company, I didn't know that I was getting shortchanged on commission. I just didn't know. I didn't know what everyone else was getting for that level of production. Sure. So very few people really make it above like 700, right? They could, because a lot of times people are billing 500 and making 250. So they don't need to make 700 to make 350. They don't need that extra 100,000 because 250 is good living, right? Yeah. So again, it's a hard question to answer because it, 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 if you're making over 200,000 point blank as a 20 year old living in New York City, life is really good. You yeah. don't really have to work that hard. It was like, why, why bother, right? So some companies, I'll give you 50%. You can bill 400 and I'll give you two. That's pretty good, right? So in order for me to make over two, I had to bill 740. That's yeah. just how bad my luck is because of the commission rate. So I had to bill that because I wanted to make over two, right? So I worked really hard to break seven so I could take home that two, right? So again, everybody has a different motivator, has a different you know, ambition has a different commission setup, which is clearly linked to their billing targets. Sure. So you you got into uh, recruiting quite accidentally, if, if uh, I did my research all right. So uh, how did you get into recruiting uh, in the first place? Because um, on your LinkedIn, I saw you did BS uh, from Babson College in finance or something like that, right? Yes. Yeah. So during during my, I was fortunate very fortunate that early in my life in high school, I had exposure to internships because I went to a top high school and they gave us internships at the local banks. So I got to see very early on what office life is like. So every day you go into the office, you know, everyone there is making like $50,000 a year. They're working these long hours, they're bored and everyone's just hanging out socializing. As I got older, I was like, I definitely don't want that. Like, I don't want to go into an office where I have to work like 40 to 50 hours a day doing some menial tasks that eventually will be out, you know, replaced by robots. And, and then I'm doing data entry, right? And then I'm making $50,000 a year, which we all know is just not a lot of money. And then there's very little progression. So very young in my life, I realized that's definitely not what I want. I don't want any job that has a limit on my income because I think it's, um, it's pretty much the antithesis of America, right? America is entrepreneurial. My, my family's yeah. immigrants. We came to this country to make money. We didn't come here to play. We came here to make money because we were, you know, my parents were poor grad students in China. So when you come here, you're coming here to make money. So any sort of job that limits you from making money, it's a scam in my view. Because like, I could be the best at this and get paid the same amount as someone who's not really good at it because we're in a job that doesn't reward you for additional effort, right? So deep down in my heart, that's always something that was very important to me was that somehow I need to find some job that has some commission component. So I obviously didn't know about recruiting. 
I just applied everywhere. Like I applied hundreds of jobs at the time I was working for my family's restaurant, was managing the restaurant, working, you know, 11 to 11. Then after I go home, I just apply to jobs until I'm like 1am. I do that every single day. And then luckily some companies started re responding. I started going out to interviews and I actually got rejected from a retail job. And in the beginning, I was like, I want to work for Uniqlo. You know, Uniqlo was setting up shop in America. Yeah. They were just starting out in 2010. And I was like, whoa, this is cool. I could be like a retail manager. And like, you know, they were paying 40,000, but the dream was, oh, you can scale very quickly. You could be like a regional manager of Uniqlo. And I was like, whoa, that's, that's like kind of exciting because then I can learn how to run a retail business and then do my own, right? That was my kind of idea. But then around the same time, this recruiting firm hit me up and was like, hey, you know, you might also want to consider recruiting because it's, it's a sales job, right? Like, because I applied to some like finance job and they were like, you are not a fit. This is not going to work out for you, but you could be potentially a salesperson. So at the time, it was just like luck. I got rejected from the Uniqlo job, which I was very sad about. And I thought that was going to be my future. I was very excited about that job, ready to like quit and go to Japan and everything. They said, no, thanks. You're not aggressive. You're, you're too aggressive. Like, you're like, this is, you're way too, like, you're not a cultural fit. Because I talk too much. I'm very aggressive, very ambitious. They need people who will listen and who will follow the company procedure. They could tell that I'm way too individualistic and it wasn't going to be a fit. And I, I even like chased the HR person. And this is like a precursor to like how good of a recruiter I would be because I'm so aggressive. <laughs> I chased her down. I was like, hey, what's up, Michelle? Tell me why I didn't get the job. And she was like shocked that I called her, found her number and was like asking her for feedback. She was like, no, you're just not a fit. Anyways, so this recruiting firm hired me and honestly, I thought it was a scam. I really did, because like, this doesn't make sense. Like, why do companies pay recruiters, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to just recruit one human being? I was like, this has got to be another one of those scammy sales jobs. Mm -hmm. But I really wanted to live in New York. And this company had a New York office in Rockefeller Center. And I was like, it's wow. even if it's a scam, yeah, even if it's a scam, it's worth looking into. And my yeah. friend was like, you might as well go. I was like, yeah, what is there to lose? I don't want to live at home anyways. I want to escape my family. I want some freedom. So I was like, let's take a, let's, let's take a spin. Let's see how it goes. And yeah. then I got to work and the rest is history. Yeah, an office at uh, Rockefeller doesn't hurt. Absolutely. If you were to advise, uh, you know, a, a recruiting entrepreneur, um, on one single most important trait to look for when they are hiring recruiters, what would that be? Um, well, I think we can all agree, and I don't know, some people may not agree actually. What I look for is a sincere financial drive because this is a very difficult job and the only reason we're in it is for the money. And a lot of people don't like admitting that because they think this should be some sort of saintly job. It's not. It's just it's just like any other sales driven job. You're doing it for the money. Like otherwise you go internal. Right. Like you just work for Facebook and do recruiting for Facebook or Amazon or something. Right. Like you only are in this job to make the big fees and take home an abnormal amount of money. Otherwise, you wouldn't deal with the drama that is there. In terms of, you know, I'm sure you have seen a pretty, pretty wide a uh, variety of uh, of billers uh, uh, you know over over last 10 years um, can you can you give us a, a few examples of you know some of the best top billers that you've seen and things that uh, set them apart from from the others well I, I think it depends right because there's longevity of a top biller versus mm -hmm. um, and so I worked at a company that produced a lot of top billers 
And those folks, a lot of them have one or two good years and then they go into management. So that's a hard question to answer because some people don't stay billing forever. Mm -hmm. um, they might have like one really good year and then they'll just like quit or like they'll just kind of plateau or they'll, you know, so it's hard to say, but like the characteristics are pretty much like similar in the sense that they're just tenacious at the end of the day. That's probably the biggest unifying factor is that they're just really perseverant because um, you don't have to be really charismatic. You don't have to be really um, like bright even. I've seen people who I would classify as their IQ is not very high, but they were good at billing because at the end of the day, you don't have to be smart. Like you don't have to be smart to talk to somebody uh, because your knowledge is not valuable. The only thing that's valuable is your ability to get people on the phone and to connect them with somebody else and just put them in touch with the right people. Like, so yes, intelligence helps, but it's not that important. It's just tenacity because as long as you have that perseverance, to call enough people, again, you don't have to be the most interesting, charismatic, chatty, like, you know, emotionally intelligent person. You just have to have the baseline skill set of that and be able to get through the noise, connect the people together. Um, but I think a big defining factor of why my colleagues were successful was also because they were very niche. So they were able to achieve success faster than a lot of the recruiters that I talk to now. So we were able to generate a lot of 20 plus year olds, you know, people under the age of 27, billing over half a million easily and comfortably. And we know lots of companies like this. And the reason why they were able to do it was because they specialized. So recruiting success depends on the model that you recruit as well. So there are some recruiters out there that are client focused. They will take an account and fill everything for that client. That decreases their ability to earn and be profitable because you're spread too thin across multiple uh, markets. Whereas if you choose the market and you specialize in the market and you specialize in the candidate pool, you can take that candidate, shop it to multiple sites and then win those multiple sites because you're working with the same. So it's called scalability, right? Like scalability of your time and your effort and your investment. So I think that's the biggest defining factor in terms of how top billers are produced. Sure, sure. That makes sense. So you mainly, do you mainly engage with your customers in a, uh, in a contingent model, retained model, a mix of both? Uh, how, how do you operate? Yeah, so we have a lot, we don't sell. That's a unique thing with our business. Obviously, we're always on social media, so people know about us. So people who like our attitude and agree with our philosophy, they come to us directly. Um, so we have a lot of inbound inbound all the time. So we have to look at the client and decide, like I said earlier, do they fall into any of these categories, right? Are they a mom and pop? If they're a mom and pop, again, the odds of them being an attractive client is close to zero. If they're a large company, the answer is absolutely not because you are a feeder site. We poach candidates from you, right? You're not a good place to work. You're a good place to take from. So no, right? So we look at this boutique and we decide, you know, depending on what they need, do we even want to work with this client? Because if we want to work with them, then we offer them choices, right? And first of all, our rate is non-negotiable. So we don't take any discounts. You know, we're at a position in our business where we do not negotiate on rate. And then we just decide, we put the ball in their court to tell us what they're comfortable with, right? So if it's a new client that I've never done business with before, but they want to shove money in my pocket, I will charge them retained. Because I'm like, fine, you want to put money in my pocket. You want us to give you man hours, I'm always doing retained at a sacrifice to my regular contingent business. 
retained is not necessarily good because it absorbs my time. My time is really valuable, right? If I have a time to use on a contingent model, I can generate candidates that are fit for multiple positions and I can maximize the value of that one candidate. For a retained search, there's some sort of exclusivity, right? I can't just give that candidate to everybody else because you paid me up front, I owe you something. So I usually, I do not like that dynamic. Um, and usually sometimes it hurts me. So I'm very careful. I would say right now I'm in a mindset where I couldn't be bothered to do any more retained. We've had some retained this year and that was something new where we were like, oh, let's try it. Um, and I did not like it. I, I, I had some good experiences and also some not very good experiences. We don't like to be told what to do. So I don't like retained because it, you, you're, bought, you're kind of treated almost like an internal recruiter. And that is the last thing I wanna do. You should not be looking to me to solve your talent issues, right? I'm only supposed to be generating one person that you're gonna hire for the search. And that's about it. I'm not supposed to staff up your whole organization, right? Because you couldn't afford that service. So no, I don't like retained. I actually really think I can sell it. I've done it before. And I've always had like retained in my old job even, don't necessarily like it because it stops me from maximizing my candidate leverage, leveraging the candidate to the maximum utilization of their value, right? That really handicaps me. So I'm not a huge fan of retained, but at the same time, free money is free money. And I'll, I'll take it under the right circumstances in which I genuinely feel that I can fill the wreck depending on what the client's willing to pay. Like, obviously you don't just take a retained in an effort to just take their money and not deliver. That is the absolutely best way to kill your business. So I always evaluate, can I realistically fill the rack? If I feel that I can, like the client's paying above market value, you know, the client's in a decent location, their requirements are decent, their team is decent, then maybe we'll do the retained. So I think it's a complicated question because you have to look at everything on a case-by-case -case basis um, and then decide in that moment in time, do, does your business need it? Does your business even need this retained search right now? Or is that actually gonna handicap you from using your man hours on other accounts that are gonna generate a lot more money because it's all about opportunity cost. Sure, sure. And you know, uh, there is, we call it collision rate uh, in, 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 in science, right? So uh, if you are submitting one single candidate to multiple clients, like how many candidates you have, then how many clients that you're submitting them to uh, is your collision rate. And niching down um, and being contingent allows you to do that, right? Now, uh, I, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, NFTs uh, and uh, uh, Web 3.0. So uh, if you are a recruiter and this is something that doesn't interest you, maybe you can uh, turn off uh, this podcast and go somewhere else. But I just last week, I was doing a little bit of research and uh, I, uh, you know, I found uh, a Tim Ferriss episode uh, with Nawal Ravikant uh, and Chris Dixon, um, which really, really, uh, it uh, opened my mind to a lot of possibilities. Right, so um, I'm trying to learn, trying to learn more. I'm sure a lot of people uh, are trying to learn more and more about NFTs, uh, NFTs, Web 3.0. Um, but would love to understand your thought process. You you are a serious real estate investor. Uh, you're now investing uh, uh, in, in, in this asset class. Uh, what's your thought process? What got you here? And uh, if you can give us a few resources uh, where we can go and learn about these things. 
Yeah, so actually for full transparency, I haven't yet started putting money into NFTs. I'm still also in the research phase. Um, mm-hmm. It's something that I've recently started like really paying attention to because it, it very much has a commercial case, right? So an NFT is first of all purchased via cryptocurrency, which I already have a lot of comfort with because I was very risky. I've played a lot in that um, since 2017 where I kind of started dabbling in it and really went hard at it really last year last year and this year. Um, it's since gone up and down quite a few times. It's been a roller coaster because I put I, I put a lot of money into it where like at certain points it like dropped a hundred grand or like would go up a hundred grand and like that's scary. It's yeah. terrifying because you you have that whole like, oh my God, I just lost 150. Uh, and like, and I was like, oh, wow, I just gained like 150, right? Like it's, it's just, it, the fluctuations are insane when it comes to cryptocurrency. So obviously NFTs are powered by crypto, whether it is you use Ethereum, obviously Ethereum is the go-to sort of token that people use for these transactions. Um, so I think the first step is understanding the relationship between crypto and NFTs. And from what I've heard, like Gary, Gary Vaynerchuk is very deep into this. So you can just Google Gary Vaynerchuk, you know, NFTs. Another resource that has been really helpful for me is this really cool podcast called NFT for Newbies. And the hosts are really interesting. They've all started to dabble into NFTs. I have a few personal friends that I know are in it. Um, Mm -hmm. And for content creators like myself, NFTs could be something I could use to actually sell my products. Um, And that's really cool. It's it's a very mystical, and I think early adopters, you either going to win big or you get slaughtered because you there's a lot of scams, there's a lot of issues right now. I I'd say proceed at your own caution, only risk what you're willing to risk because look what's happening to crypto right now. This has been a bad week for crypto. Yeah. All of a sudden, that impacts your NFT value because now the the Ethereum dropped and so did Bitcoin. So these are all interlinked and it's still very new. Um, and it's just proceed at your own risk, but guaranteed there's going to be a small portion of people who are really going to profit off of this if they do it right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I, I'm not sure uh, about uh, the financial uh, uh, uncertainties and uh, you know how the whole money aspect of it is going to work, but just from the from from a tech perspective it's very exciting right it's very exciting because we are going back uh to to the basics of internet of building protocols um that are public that are open source um and uh, that created possibilities of people creating um you know companies like of facebook google uh, you know, uh, and all of that, right? So, most common example uh, that I like to cite is uh, you know, email works on SMTP protocol, which was developed. I don't know where it was developed. It's it's a free of cost protocol. Nobody makes any money when you send an email, um, and we are going back to those open, uh, you know, that that basics of internet that made internet such a great place uh, and going going back to, you know, having more open source uh, protocol based uh, elements on the web instead of, you know, having it centralized uh, with uh, one single control, right? So that's, that's what's exciting me the most about it. Um, my last question then, then, 
I always ask, like, what is one single podcast, one single book, uh, or a person that has had, um, you know, an outsized impact on the way you think and the way you look at the world? And uh, who would you recommend, uh, you know, for us to go and check it out? Well, I, I'm kind of torn to answer this question because the older I get, the more I dislike this person. Um, but his name is Robert Kiyosaki. <laughs> um, he's very famous. Rich Dad, Poor Dad. That's the dude. Oh, yeah. Okay. Rich Dad, yeah. Poor Dad. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of him because he does run quite a few scams. Like, you know, his he does prey upon um, people who want to get rich quick. Yeah. He absolutely will will prey on them and he's very predatorial. I've been to a few of his um, seminars where literally he has taken, he has encouraged people to increase their credit limits so that they can buy his product priced at 15,000. And these are people who are very poor and they are not doing well. And you, I can see it when I'm at the seminar. So I can appreciate his sales prowess, his ability to make people do things and his entrepreneurial journey. And obviously, Rich Dad, Poor Dad was a very, uh, very powerful book that really shaped my understanding of being a worker and being a, an entrepreneur and helped me at a young age. I read it when I was 19 and I reread it, you know, a couple of years ago. And it's a very valuable uh, philosophy, right? Uh, this idea of like not, not doing the conventional thing. And even when it relates to real estate. Right. Like he was the one that had a few books. I read like ABCs of real estate investing that gave me the knowledge to look into the tax code as it relates to 1031 exchanges, which I did when I retired. Right. Like the first time. And so I actually did do those things. And it was just because his books kind of like said, this is a model that works. Right. You can delay your tax. You can always roll. So it's really wonderful for people who are looking to get rich and like being rich and enjoy capitalism. Obviously, he rubs a lot of people the wrong way because he is teaching people the system and how to leverage the system. Um, I see nothing wrong with that. I just see that the way he preys upon people and take their money to fuel his businesses, it's a little disappointing for somebody who has the financial wherewithal to not do that. Yeah. So it's a very torn reaction, but he is a very controversial, um, but definitely has some good points um, that he made that really shaped my views. Okay, perfect. Um, well, uh, that's pretty much it. Thank you so much, Tandon. I will put a link uh, to your LinkedIn uh, in the description in case uh, somebody wants to uh, get in touch. Uh, yeah, thank you so much uh, uh, for recording this with me and uh, have a great day. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Wish you best of luck in your business and let's stay in touch. I will.